Welcome to Perspectives YYC. Today's episode, I got to sit down with a man I met at the local coffee shop, Eric Weikertz, who turns out to be an incredibly fascinating person. Um, 90 plus years on the earth, uh, three continents, train ownership, science. I don't know. There's a lot of cool stuff that he's about to talk to us about. If you get a chance and you're liking the content, if you could pause and perhaps give us a rating, uh, a five. We'll probably have to cut all of this out. Yeah, he just gets up and leaves, which is the correct way to end a podcast. And so, yeah, if you can uh, have a listen, let us know what you think. But without even further ado, uh, here's me getting to sit down with Eric Weikertz. I hope you enjoy. I guess we'll just start talking and we'll just have a conversation. Okay. And then when we've talked too long, Kyle will tell us to shut up. Can you up your volume a little bit? Okay, me? no problem. Uh, Kyle, if I start projecting, it's still okay? Okay. Um. So, hi, Eric. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> How are you today? How are you, Dave? Okay, I guess. Good, good. Um. I invited you here because after getting to know you, you're uh, you're an interesting man. <laughs> but maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I was wondering, maybe we can start, as I often do with uh, the folks that I bring here, you could maybe introduce yourself and maybe talk about how we met. Oh, I, I don't know anymore, really. Yeah. Uh, and the coffee shop, I believe. Yeah. Um, on 4th Street. Yeah. We are there a lot. You're a regular. Yeah. Yeah. I'm there. One of the regular customers. Yeah. I've seen you around a long time, but I finally, I don't remember if, I chatted with you, or you chatted with me, but I don't know. who cares? No. Yeah, but we had a nice we had a nice talk, and um, and I found out your wife is an artist, or yeah, a li- lifelong artist. Uh, yes, and a very good one too. And this is what the what makes it so difficult for me is that she was a very intelligent person, adventurous, and and became president of the Alberta Artists Association, was invited to a government trip to Japan with a group, they paid everything for her. And then since about 2016, I guess, she started to be deteriorating both physically and mentally. And, and it is a very awful thing for, for the people around you that you expect behind that face a regular person. Well, it ain't so. It is, it is an, a very difficult time I have to adjust myself to that situation. Uh, but, you know, you know, you know it in the back of your mind. But um, to accept that thing is, is a different game. So, um, anyway, I'm here now. I... Um... Yeah, I I got the pleasure. I mean, I'm pretty sure many years ago when I first moved to Calgary that, you know, my wife and I noticed you and your wife uh, hanging out at the coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, because you guys look so sweet. Uh, For me, and I'm a a huge sap, uh, anytime I see any couple, you know, holding hands at 80 or something, like I... It, I'm I'm a, I'm a nerd. My wife is cold hearted. I just told you about the eggs. Well, right? we didn't we didn't hold hands. <laughs> so, so not in, certainly not in the coffee shop, but but um, yeah. But we were married a long time. I mean, we married sixty seven years ago in in nineteen fifty one. That's incredible. In the Netherlands, yeah. She's Dutch as well. Huh? She's Dutch as well. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we didn't live very far from each other. Uh, a village called Huizen, which is 35 kilometers 
to the southeast of Amsterdam. The village consists of two parts. It was an old fisherman's village on the Zuiderzee, which was later dammed in, you know, and made into polders. But anyway, the um, that was part of the village, and the other part were more urban commuter-type peoples that they had their business in the big city in Amsterdam, and they traveled by, by the tramway to Bussum Station, and from there to downtown Amsterdam. But she lived in, in that part of the village, and I lived in the older part of the the fisherman village. <laughs> anyway, um, in a semi-modern house. Her parents were more well-to-do than, than my parents, so in other words, she could say she she married below her station. <laughs> Horrors. Yeah, that's, that's how you got to do it. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so, how, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, let's let's dwell on this. I mean, uh, how did you meet her then, if you were of different uh, tastes? How did you meet, actually? Well, socially, I guess. For one thing, she um, she followed a sewing course in my part of town, and um, her bicycle tour just brought it past my house, for starters. So, and she came regularly there. That's one way I saw her. But also, our, our, our parents on either side, they, they knew each other somehow. And anyway, that's the way it happens. And, um, and then only went to, um, this is directly after the war, in, um, 1946, she uh, was accepted in the the Arts Academy in the city. Um, it was called the Rietveld, R-I-N-T-V-E-L-D, Rietveld Academy. That is where she took up her artist career in, um, in drawing. Um, the first year in that school, they did everything. They did painting on oil, uh, drawing, printmaking, um, Textile business, that sort of stuff. And the second year in the school there, so this 1946, they um, they could choose in what direction they wanted to go. And she chose textiles, uh, not weaving, but a textile printing. Um, at the time, and it sounds remotely now, there was at the Netherlands was a substantial textile industry in the eastern part of the Netherlands. In our age, is gone by the wayside, of course, and everybody buys their stuff in China or Vietnam or wherever. But and these textile businesses, they they printed all sort of stuff on textiles, and on the but after her study, she was picked up by one of the recruiters in there that came from the industry to um, to work for them and um, in in making textile designs. But um, somehow that fell by the wayside. Shortly thereafter, we moved to Canada here. But that was in between. There was another event, and that should be given a little bit more emphasis. In uh, 1953, there was an enormous flood in the Netherlands. There was an extremely high storm from the southeast, plus an extraordinary high tide. Uh, many of the dikes uh, were broken, and um, many pieces of land were flooded. The next morning, there were something like 2,800 dead, and um, that was a very different disaster in the Netherlands. Now, I, um, I'm an earth scientist, and I had a reasonably good job there. Uh, but I knew also a lot about Canada. And Canada, the Canadian troops liberated most of the Netherlands in 1945. So we became very much acquainted with Canada. I always wanted to go here for different reasons. So I wrote a few people, and and I got a job from Imperial Oil, ESSO, in Toronto. Uh, it was pretty good, an excellent job, actually. So we moved here. In to Toronto, I was assigned to the Eastern Canada Exploration Group for 
couple of reasons also for that they are familiar in the French language, as in Quebec. Now, let me make perfectly clear that the language, in the French language in Quebec, c'est très très différent. On parle en français et Québec, n'est-ce pas? So, if you think you can speak French, Parisian French, c'est très différent. But okay, I, I got a job. There was an addition to it anyway. <laughs> so, there was one other point actually by, that, by the uh, Imperial Oil when they interviewed me there. At the time, the, um, the first ideas of um, plate tectonics came in in the, in the, in the geological science. My professor in, in Utrecht University was a guy called Wiening Manus, and the name was actually familiar to the people in Esso. I was very surprised about that. Most of the world is covered in water, and there are very ships on there. But to measure the gravity value of the Earth and different places, you need a very stable platform. So, in other words, that, that eliminates the oceans, the sea. But Fanny Manus had another idea. He used submarines of the Royal Dutch Navy, who traveled regularly between Indonesia and the Netherlands. And if you dive to about 100 meters below the surface, the boat is perfectly level and perfectly quiet. So Fanny Manus was a really uh, a first-class scientist, and he was able to measure the first gravity measurements at sea, the very first one. Now, the measurement of gravity is, is important for all sorts of reasons. So from, the, from that point of view, he was well-known in, in people in the SO because they got an interview from, from, from SO in New York, and these people are no fools. They, they are very informed about who is doing what where. So, but that helped. Anyway, I stayed with that imperial for six years, and then my brother-in-law got married to my to Andy's sister. So we traveled for the first time back to the Netherlands. Now, this is 1960, you know. Nowadays, people step on jets, I mean, and fly back, sometimes in a couple of days. But it was the first time for us to be moved back to the Netherlands and for this event. It was okay. Kite party. Um, she went by boat, <laughs> and I flew. So at the same time, I got a job offer from Philips Electronics in the Netherlands. They picked me up out of a magazine. So I went there, and I was supposed to be working in a lighting factory as manager there, and be trained, but I didn't like it at all. And so I took the job, and I went back to Canada. And, um, yeah, they couldn't say two jobs at the same time, so I gave them my job at SO, unfortunately. <laughs> but that happened. Then I fell into jobs. I mean, I was, I was looking for, for, for jobs, of course, at that time. And I got a couple of offers from, from the Dominion, Dominion Observatory. It is now a department. It was two department of mines from the United Nations. So I took the UN job. My specialty is, and I had it beside that, at that time, I was a specialist in airborne geophysics. And there were big jobs in, in the Suriname, that is the old Dutch Guiana, and in British Guiana next door. So I became a manager for these surveys. That was an interesting existence for both in Suriname and in um, British Guiana. The, the purpose of those was to find to find mines or mineral ac accumulations that could be mined later on. The, uh, it's a system that works on flying low over the land and um, producing an electromagnetic wave into the ground, and um, that is picked up on the front end of the plane. However, if there is a conductor in the underground. That, that primary signal will be distorted. And that's what I recorded on, yeah, at that time on paper tape. We didn't have computers. 
Anyway, it was an interesting job, and after that, the UN wanted to transfer back. Oh, yeah, I was first of all, in between, I was in Tanzania for them. They had a program like that set up. It was technically totally unacceptable, and I told them that. Then they wanted to transfer me to somewhere in the South Pacific. There were no high schools whatsoever, so we, I quit. And I went back, and I, the people that worked for me there were Canadian, Canadian Air Service. And they, uh, they were, no, in Amoco, which Amoco Petroleum was, they wanted to have somebody like me. So I got back to Canada and uh, worked for Amoco for 22 years. And then they, and they retired me. And then they hired me back as a consultant. <laughs> one, of those, one of those absurd situations. But anyway, um, the beginning was kind of rough because I worked in Canada and kind of offshore. It was the first offshore operation in Newfoundland and in the West Coast. And i tell you a little story about that. It may be funny. We hired an, a contractor there who had an, an, an ex-Canadian minesweeper. Now, these minesweepers, those years were built of wood to prevent magnetic mines and so on. So the boat would suit us for that. But um, first we had to install the stuff there. And then um, we had a test run. That was in Vancouver Harbor. And he made circles and he went forward, backward. And then he made a sharp turn to port. And then he went to port and to port. A boat to port. So much so that the ferry coming from, from, from the sea uh, blasting his horn. <laughs> what this idiot is doing right in front of him. What has happened, the installation was so cheaply done that um, one of the steel doors on the, on the, on the vessel uh, slammed into a cable that was hanging loose and the cable was still doing the automatic pilot. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, with, with, the, with most of effort, the ferry was able to stop instead of ramming us midships, you know. And then we, think we fixed that up. Then he was loading oil for sea, but he forgot to turn off the tap. So at the from deck, we had three inches of, di of diesel fuel on the deck. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, it was an, not an... Not a very scientific operation. On the other hand, I worked in the East Coast, and we did we hired vessels in there, and it was very interesting. We also worked together with the situation in um, in Darsmouth, across the bay there, which is a geophysical division for the oceans. Anyway, after that, I worked up north, at crews working for me, and. Um, Occasionally, I had to come along to see what the, what the guys are doing. And that was sometimes you leave the airport here sitting in a cold airplane and outside temperature is minus 22. And before the damn thing is warmed up, you're half an hour into the flight. But anyway, uh, there were good things and bad things in there. At that time, we, we used trailers to put the put the crews in there, and including me and my supervisors, uh, and you were parked there. And they parked them sometimes in a circle, way up north when, we, when they're doing seismic crews as well. These trailers, they were part of the setup, and also the, the drilling crews or the seismic, but they, they didn't could stop the engines at those temperatures because they ran down to minus 35 or so. And they... Um, so they had to keep him running all night long. So one day I uh, had a few hours free, so in this evening, and I walked on one of the seismic lines away from the camp, and within, say, 200 meters, you don't hear a sound anymore. It's completely quiet, extremely cold night, stars overhead, bright, and I walked through that bush there, and then it hit me. He said, Jesus, you are alone here. Who else lives in these forests and the bush? How about a bunch of wolves? I'm a very easy prey. At that point, I figured that's enough. <laughs> I walked back. But it was an experience to, 
to experience the, the high north in extremely cold weather and bright stars overhead, no light pollution. I worked for them for till about, when was it? I retired in 90 from Amoco. That was my career for the oil business in there. I did have another career that's in the railway business. I was always interested in the railways in a big way. And I became uh, a director on board the Central Western Railway. We bought a 100-mile section of CN. It was supposed to be abandoned in 85. And we moved grain, grain transport in there from the elevators. In those years, there were elevators on every small town along the line there. And within a period of about 20 years, beginning in, let's say, beginning in about uh, 90, let's say 2000, let's say 2000, all the elevators disappeared. All the wooden elevators were gone. So thereby our business was gone as well, of course, because we serviced the small towns where the elevators for the grain transport moved, um, hopper cars in there, and um, I hauled them back a couple of days later. So CN could haul 20, 30 bunch of cars out in Wayne Hall to Edmonton. It was very profitable for them and for us too, but um, that didn't last very long. I also had a private railway car in um, an ex-CPR sleeper. We had a, there was a bunch of us and called the Colonist Railcar Society, and I became president of that. And we traveled with this car all over Western Canada behind the freights and also embedded in, in passenger service. So here was an, was an interesting job. There was a car built in the 1930s and was modernized in the 40s, but we had, we had um, uh, 12, 12 sections in that and a private room. I had, the private room also had a bathroom. So we had groups on board and we traveled from here to Vancouver and to Prince George, and uh, to um, Fort McMurray, uh, called water, Waterways, the end of the line there. And um, smaller smaller branches in there as well, but small groups that we had on board. And it was an interesting operation. So then later, I, um, I was called by an outfit in a, by, the, by the Dutch Railway Museum, in, in Utrecht, and I knew some of these people, but not very well. So, at that time, Ontario Northland Railway had an, um, bought five uh, original TEE Trans Europe Express trains from from uh, the TEE outfit in that was made by the Dutch and the Swiss railways combined in the fifties. The, uh, the the train sets consisted of a power car a um, dining car, a compartment car, and a an, and, and car with uh, open seating. But they had um, steering caps on each end. They were therefore they were push-pull. Push they were, in the 1950s, completely air-conditioned. They had intercom, and they um, ran through the boundaries of that time, boundary-bound Europe. So they they were ahead of their times by a generation. Okay, but later on, these, car, these trains ran between Amsterdam and Basel and Zurich and later in Germany as well. And they were a great success financially too. But yeah, they became older. Everything became electrified again after the war. And so these diesel units, they were a bit of a nuisance for many people. They smoked a bit. <laughs> but anyway, sometimes they had them running in two sets at the same time, which, of course, due to the personnel, uh, were not particularly profitable anymore at that time. So the sets were set out for sale, and they fitted Ontario Northland perfectly between Toronto, Capus Casing, and um, the northern towns went there. So Ontario Northland bought four, the four remaining sets. There were five originally. One ran into an accident, human error, shall we say. The four train sets went to, um, to Toronto, and 
and served on the Iron Northland very well. But then again, they became 20 years later, they were getting older, Ontario not want to have newer equipment. So they were put up for sale, and then the museum in Holland wanted to know if I could bring up some of them back. Well, for them it was too expensive, but a Swiss group appeared on the scene, and they uh, they hired me as a manager for that. I worked for them for a, for a couple of years, too. It was after my work for, for Imperial and Esso and Amaco. So I bought the four, the four train sets, what was left of them after a lot of vandalism. It was amazing the, um, the attitude of the, the crews in, in uh, North Bay, where Ontario Northland is based. When they heard that the, the train sets that were sitting in the yards over there were sold, the boy, they were enthusiastic about it. Um, they they restored the doors opening. They restored the windows, which were broken. They uh, looked after the brake systems and the, and the coupler systems. And boy, they were so good. And then it turned out that our Swiss friends didn't have the money to do it then. So I was kept busy for about three and a half years to keep Ontario Northland happy because they wanted the stuff of their yards, of course. And um, that was, was sort of an thing, but finally we did it, and then we moved the stuff over all the way to St. John, New Brunswick, where the, um, where the boat was waiting for them. So and from that point off, it was their operation, the Swiss, I mean, and they went to Hamburg and a few other places. But they're, they're now in, in the Netherlands again, because the group that was originally doing this didn't have any more money or whatever. That's beyond me anyway. But it was an interesting operation, particularly on the road from from Montreal. We started in North Bay, and then we ran behind the freight, a 40-car four, a four freight to Montreal, to the Macmillan Yard. They put down there, and um, then they wanted to move us uh, in, fr- in front, in other words, behind the engines, and a 120 loaded car train with freight. So at that point, I was at CN's office, and I said, look, this stuff is not built to hang 120 loaded freight cars behind it. No, they, that, they, they, they could see that. So we were put on the back of 120 cars freight. Now, in the brake system, there's always a slight relay from former end, and in the passenger services, they have a delayed relay to prevent the shock from moving and turning away in normal situations. But they couldn't set them to direct release. What happened when the, the long line of freight cars had started to break, our brakes jammed. Result, flat wheel. Bam, very bad flat wheel. <laughs> we were set out on the siding near Brockville, <laughs> At that point, a CN service truck came by, sporting a sign on the outside, emergency response. <laughs> so I was sitting there, and I thought, oh, Christ, what is this? But turned out to be for something else. And then they asked the what we could do about the flat wheels. And uh, well, they were able to to handle that off as as in place, which was very helpful. Next train we could take over via Kingston. And beyond Kingston was a brake application and the brake system, the, the brake couplers broke between the freight cars ahead of us and ourselves. Turned out to be in poor weld in one of those coupler systems. So again, we were set, set out there. But we were sitting on the main line, on CN, on Friday afternoon. There were two passenger trains blocked on either end of us. You could hear the curses in CN office in Montreal. Luckily, there was a switcher somewhere nearby, so they halted out and we were put on a siding so the traffic could flow on, on the main line of CN. But it was like, yeah, I was really sweating blood at that time. But we were sitting there, so eventually CN got so annoyed but the whole situation, that they sent us a private locomotive so we could move privately from there all the way to Montreal, to the coast. Originally, I had proposed that to the Swiss to do it that way, 
But no, 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 they didn't have all the money for it. So <laughs> all the all the other avent- aventures they would be forgotten. But anyway, that worked well. So so we went around, went through the night, and we ended up in New Brunswick in the morning, ice cold. There was no heat on board, of course. So I asked the crew, where can we get a cup? We had to stop there. Where can we get a cup of coffee here? Oh, there was no problem, says we We go about 10 miles down the road here, and there is an, an, uh, a cafe along, along the rail. Okay. So we waited for a minute. At the same time, opposing traffic came by, and we had the Swiss and the German and German film crew on board. The opposing traffic turned out to be a CN freight loaded with tanks, personnel carriers, anti-aircraft guns, howitzers, and we had a German film man on board. Ah, das ist ja schön, nicht? Das ist eine Militärzug. And I thought you guys had never changed. <laughs> and then we moved, we moved back to our cafe, and we had a cup of coffee and a breakfast and everything else. And and then we uh, had that, and later our train came by, and we went, we went on our way. So that was a helpful thing. But finally, we ended up in um, Moncton. Moncton is uh, where the, um, the main branch of the CN goes south to St. John's. So I thought, well, that's it. We were in Moncton, and we're still in Moncton. And we had a, a ship waiting on the other side at the harbor in St. John's. Nothing moved. So I got on the phone to CN. said, what's going on here? We're supposed to be on that boat, on that boat very shortly. Oh, said the guy there. Yeah, let's have a look. Oh, listen, um, yeah, there's an outstanding bill here of $68,575.33. What are you going to do about it? I saw for God's sake, the goddamn Swiss had to had to pay the bill in advance. No, I didn't do that. So we're sitting there. It resulted in transatlantic calls to their banks and to everything else. And finally, they came up with the money just in time because otherwise the ship had left. Just in time to to pay the bill to CN. I don't blame, blame CN because if they had to put the whole stuff on the boat over there, they would never see the money again. <laughs> So, anyway, but that point when it was put on the boat, it was in the end of my involvement in that particular job. What do you want to know? Oh, more and more, less, less. more years, <laughs> more years. What's fascinating gives a, a, a bird's eye view of the <laughs> of the whole of the. Yeah, whole. I had an interesting things to do in my life, and I think so. Maybe not. But I'm also a sailor, and I sailed on the west coast several places. I circled Vancouver Island on my own, and a few more things. So that was on the, another part of me, I guess. I have three daughters who live on the coast. I have all their offspring. Oh, whatever you want to know, guys, I mean, from here on in. Your daughters were born here or all around the world? No, one born in Holland, one born in Canada, and one born in South America. It's oh, incredible. Yeah, because your life... Moves around. You're a global man, Eric. Oil, oil business. <laughs> and are are they all now in Canada? Uh, yeah, they are here. So uh, my eldest daughter's retired. Second daughter is, let's say, just very rich. Her husband had a business, and that went very, very well. Andy and I, my wife and I, we don't really know where the money comes from, but it doesn't matter. And my third daughter is an occupational therapist. And she has to haul her money every day again, like the birds. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess maybe what I wanted to focus in on a little bit was, um, you know, all of this global fascinating life. And we could probably spend a whole afternoon talking about your experiences. But if I bring it back to Calgary, um, to Canada, and uh, other than oil being in Calgary and kind of setting you up here as a home base, do you have any reflections about? Calgary in general that maybe kept you here instead of moving to oh, a yes, tropical I country do. or <laughs> I do. We we came from from Toronto, Toronto area, to uh, to Calgary uh, by train on the Canadian, and we ended up here in '66. We had two adjoining bedrooms ourselves and the kids was very nice actually, and we came to Calgary and settled here. We felt. Immediately happy here. My Calgary was only 300, 
20,000 people or so. But the atmosphere in Calgary was so different from Toronto and from the people there that we were, we were actually quite happy when we came here. And um, the Western atmosphere, many people in the, in the East have not experienced that. We were in Toronto, of course, big city there, although we won't, I lived outside. But in Calgary, it was very nice people, and they were friendly, and they were uh, interesting. So we were happy in here in Calgary. Shortly afterwards, the, the, the oil boom started to come in in Calgary, and there was construction everywhere. Out of my window, I counted 18 construction cranes working at the same time. We had a house, we rented a house in Mount Royal that was for rent, and we, a year later we bought it, which was a good deal, actually. And, um, so we lived there for the next 20, 25 years, I guess. So when I retired then, we had contacts in Victoria quite a bit, and I had a boat over there, and my youngest daughter lived there. So we, <laughs> we thought, well, maybe we should go to Victoria, out of Calgary. So <laughs> that's what we did. We sold the house in a day. Can you believe it? One day. That gave us a bit of a shock. What the hell now? And then we moved to Victoria, referred to our cabin on the West Coast, and then we bought a house in Victoria, an older house, fixed it up. But um, then I got sick there. I got pleurisy. It's very serious. Then I uh, had an accident in my railway business. Um, um, part of my left big toe is off. Uh, painful. Then my youngest daughter moved out of Victoria to Ontario. She lived op- opposite this, more or less. And then it started to rain. And I did that for six months solid. At that point, <laughs> my wife and I said, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> so... I'm not the only one that did this. Several other people I know did that same thing. And we moved back to Calgary. We bought a house also in Mount Royal, where we presently still live. And um, so we were happy. And Andy got back to her studio that she had here. But that was Victoria. You know, what's interesting is you had this experience coming from Toronto to Calgary in 66. You know, my wife and I came from Toronto to Calgary in 2012, and we felt immediately the same thing. And I'm sure the scale and the fundamental environmental things have changed so much in one sense, but there's something... That's interesting. Yeah, we... That's so, so many years later. Yeah, that like I was born and raised in Toronto. Uh, you, were you, born, you were born in Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. yeah well, in North York, before it became megacity well, Toronto. Well, that's not right? Toronto. Yeah, now it's in Toronto, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I was actually told by somebody that I must actually be from Toronto by the way I say Toronto. But anyways, okay. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out, Eric. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, so we flew out here. I was running away from my problems for sure in Toronto. Uh, it was uh, overwhelming to live there. Um, and I came to Calgary and egotistically, as Torontonians, we call it the little big city. There's something about Calgary where there's modern amenities there's nice restaurants great coffee shops but people here still seem nice to me i i don't know like i'm sure that yeah maybe it's different for you it's having... still it still is that that sort of a way yes i agree yeah there's that something is, uh, i don't know what it is <laughs> i would hate to move to toronto now with oh man with 16 days of traffic moving at one mile an hour oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's no rush hour it's you know when i oh god no no when i when i left i think the rush hour started at four in the morning finished at 11 then there was a lunch and then it would start at about 2 30 and last till about eight because everybody started trying to change their shifts to get around <laughs> from it but everybody did it because there's you know, something like eight or five and a half million people feeding into the one, you know, well, into the two highways. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and eight if you count all the whole golden horseshoes. And even when we left 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 Toronto, and that was in '60s, even then it was. I mean, there were only four lanes. Yeah, but but, but, they, <laughs> but were, they were full. They were four lanes. <laughs> Fact. My dad, my dad moved to Toronto in '72, uh, so when he describes it, I mean, they still live there, but. Uh, I think some of the markers, you know, Shepherd was a forest, et cetera, in 72. But, um, but he had an office in Bloor 
and it was he said it was still busy like you're describing like where you get into the it's like every urban center in anywhere in the world uh, as soon as you have whatever it is that draws people there it's fascinating i have an i have a funny story about that um in about 1955 a dutch destroyer came to toronto together with other nations warships and i have associated with the navy as well in holland so we were invited on board so I was in the harbor, in, in the, slightly offshore there in the harbor. A lot of other ships were there too. So when we were put back on shore, we had, at first we had a meeting and dinner in the, in, the, in the long room. When we put on shore again, that is on the road along the along the road in Toronto, the, the shoreline. Shore Lakeshore? Lakeshore, the Lakeshore Road. Again, it was about packed. One of the laconic Dutch sailors, lower rank, saw that over there, and he remarked, Jesus, sir, is this the promised land? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's Toronto. I don't know. (laughs) Shit, man. (laughs) I never forget that. I uh, I don't know. I, I... I love Calgary. I mean, I guess instead of bashing on Toronto, I'll say that I love Calgary. I I don't know what it is yet. I don't want to know, actually. If I can define it, then I've screwed something up. Anyway. But it's great hearing that you felt that way in 66. So I can't be wrong. There must be something. It's quite different, yeah. Look, you guys, I think I have to move. Oh, we have a few minutes more, if you wish. Yeah, no, let's let's do this then. I think that... um, Maybe I'll ask you this. I mean, with respect to your amazing wife, who I had the honor of meeting last week uh, about about your wife, about art, about Calgary. Oh yeah, well that's a long story itself. She um, she didn't have her matriculation in the Netherlands, but there was apparently a program in UFC that for adults that they said that she could join and then have some early specific courses for, first in English, of course. And all that, and she could join the student situation there. So she got involved in the um, Department of Arts in University of Calgary, and eventually graduated with a BFA. She also had an, um, a family at home, and therefore it took her seven years to get the BFA. And then she and another lady, Liz Allen, English lady. They graduated at the same time, more or less the same age. And uh, they thought, well, maybe we could set up a studio between the two of us. And sure as hell they did. It's called the station studio because it was meant for many people to come in and out there. So Liz Allen uh, was a lithographer and she bought a lithography press. And Andy was a printmaker and she bought a um, press for, uh, for, for intaglios and um, printmaking press. It was set up in a studio and other things as well, like an, like an asset uh, cupboard when they, she could asset her plane, her, her sink plates and so on. Anyway, the studio too was a great success for many people. And she sold and Liz sold out of that many, many um, prints or artwork out of that. It lasted for 20 years, the station studio. Then they were kicked out of there because of rent or whatever. And they, um, in our house, near our house, there was an, an area in the garden that where never anything grew um, because of the high pine trees. So we decided to build our own in the garden. It called, was called the garden studio. And she did a lot of work there. She, although she couldn't make etchings, but because there was no f- ventilation for the acid. F- do so, and but anyway, she made a lot of lot of watercolors and um, and colored prints that she printed somewhere at the at the U of C, and so it was a very successful career until about 2016. At that time, she started to show signs of uh, deterioration, you know, physically and. Not yet mental, but mentally came very shortly after that. And so the studio is closed now. And 
sort of was her, her career, but she had a very busy life socially. And she did, for instance, also, uh, she worked as a volunteer making arts in a palliative care. That was in between there. And then she came, uh, was a member of the Horticultural Society, for which she did uh, pen drawings, quite a few. And then um, she became president of the Alberta Artists Association, where she was invited with a bunch of artists to the pen. That was an, a government-sponsored situation, and she and a group of other artists were invited to to Japan and stayed there for about a, for, for a couple of weeks. And the art the the artworks were also transferred by CPR for free. So you know, she was very active in all sorts of <laughs> in all sorts of things. And perhaps this is why it hit me so hard that she is now well more or less going downhill because you tell her a story one moment and. And then she can't repeat it. Or she asked, did you have dinner? I said, yes, of course, I had dinner. And then the conversation goes on for a few minutes. And then she asked again, did you have dinner? I said, yes, I had dinner. Anyway, more, no more of that. Well, I, uh, yeah, I guess my thought uh, before we finish was to garner an idea of your historic idea of the art scene in Calgary. But maybe instead of that... Um, because we can always revisit it, and we can always we can always talk again. But um, yeah, I wonder if at the end of all of your incredible life, yeah, is there anything in a short sense that we should approach life? Like, is there any secret? I mean, you've done so many cool things, Eric, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I I wish I'd started this podcast uh, two years ago because your wife sounds like someone I yeah, needed to talk well, to. But, but I do, but I. Oh, I would say two things. And number one is that if you're involved in a job, doesn't matter what, do do and finish it as good as you can. You know, in other words, don't cut corners. I mean, do the best thing you can for it. The second thing is that be be kind to to anyone you meet, even even if the guy is in, is in, is a jerk. I mean, just let it let it blow away from you and don't worry about it. Although it is sometimes fairly hard, I know. But um, be kind to people. And finally, my um, um, my contribution to charity goes exclusively to the animal world. I um, I do you know, PETA, that is in, in mid organization stage. The, uh, the shelters in here, world wildlife, and that sort of stuff. Humans can more or less look after themselves, you hope. But, but animals can't. And they're, they're persecuted and they're mis- misused. And so that's why I'm supporting the animal world. But oh, yeah, there's one more women's shelter, actually. I pay for that too. That's the only one. So. Well, That's what I can say, Swedish. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, maybe we'll come back and talk oh, about the war. Pleasure, whatever you want to know. <laughs> uh, you have a, have tell a you some interesting stories out of the war years. Yeah, sure. We didn't even touch the the real stuff, but no, that is not that is not all the guns. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Oh, you guys are welcome. Yeah, and uh, I hope you're used to you. Yeah, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Um,
You've just heard a great new track by a band here called Thomas Thomas. They are uh, amazing, all in yellow, and about to debut an EP soon. They gave us the incredible honor of uh, using their amazing track, Gracious Hosts, for our uh, podcast. And I just wanted to uh, let you all know that you should be definitely checking them out on Instagram. And once they're on Spotify and Apple and all that stuff, we're going to let you know. Thanks to Thomas Thomas and all the other amazing musical uh, people that we're meeting through this project. Um, yeah. This podcast has been brought to you by Media Lab YYC. Kyle Marshall runs this amazing little outfit here in downtown Calgary. Um, and we wanted to say this here at Media Lab YYC, we help you share your stories with the public, video, audio, business, personal. Let us help you take your idea to the finish line.